Vodka. 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 Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you're listening to Vodka O'Clock from AmberUnmasked.com. And just to let you know, since it's been a really great year kicking off the Patreon, you would go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked for that information. It looks like um, the votes are calculated and in. And so what I'm going to be doing is actually changing it up. What I had been doing all this year was um, calculating the charges based on each episode. So it would be like, you know, whatever pledge per week. So um, what I'm going to do is change that so that it's just a monthly setting. Um, I think it's just easier for people to understand through the Patreon settings because you can do monthly budgets even with the weekly thing. But it just, I think, was setting a lot of people off. They were more confused by it. So uh, so this way, oh, that's going to be changing soon. We're going to go to a, just a straight up monthly pledge and I appreciate you guys adjusting those accounts, those of you that are already backing. And that way, if you haven't backed before and you were hesitant because you found it confusing, hopefully this clears that up for you. So go to patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked and uh, we can just keep bringing new wonderful content to you. Um, we, meaning people like, you know, my friend Josh, who's back here on the show. Hello. Hey. Hi. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. It was very uh, relaxed, um, but it was with um, some of the cooler members of my family. So. Okay, awesome. Yeah, ours was pretty chill, too. We uh, just sat around watching um, Grace and Frankie on Netflix. Nice. One of my favorite shows. I am enamored by this show. So I was really surprised that, um, you know the men in the family were able to, to not find fault with it. Right. I, think, I think they enjoyed it, which is funny. That's good. Um, because to me, I look at it as like, you know, this you know, real female lead feminist show and everything, but you know, Oh, it hey. totally is. But it, I mean, Lily Tomlin's so She's great. Amazing. Oh my God. I, I just, her character, I'm just like, I want to be her when I grow up. And it's what I say when I watch practical magic and the crazy answer there. I'm like, oh, I just want to be Stucker Channing, you know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so, and also, not to go, we're going to totally, like, now make this totally. just the, the Grace and Frankie hour. Um, I love the fact that they cast Martin Sheen and Sam Waterston as the gay couple. That they didn't go for stereotypes. They took some pretty masculine dudes. See, I didn't think they, they I think it took several episodes before they found a groove together because yeah. it just looked really awkward. Yes. Um, but yeah, but it, but it, it, it just works. I, I just, I, I really like shows that avoid easy stereotypes. Um, so. And I love the, the one daughter character, Brianna cracks me up. Oh my God. Yes. So much. Yeah. So I did for Thanksgiving, I gathered a whole bunch of Grace and Frankie animated GIFs and made a Thanksgiving <laughs> blog post of just them because I found I found a, a GIF because I say GIF. Sorry, y'all are wrong. Um, I found a GIF for every occasion, like basically that comes up during a family gathering. So head if you, if you go and just look for Thanksgiving 
on amberunmasked.com. You should get the Grace and Frankie nice. page. And actually, I've been told by my daughter that GIF is correct, that if I say GIF, I'm wrong. Yeah. And she said, quote, President Obama says GIF. <laughs> so that's what it is. So there. It's, you know, sometimes you just need to learn things. Well, the guy who invented it calls it GIF. So that's why I'm okay with it. Um, but I mean, how many years, most of my life, I said Iraq instead of Iraq. Oh, yeah. So, you know, hey, we just need a little kick in the pants once in a while yes. about how we pronounce things. And I get things wrong all the time. It's okay. Yeah, there's that whole thing of um, smart people who read a lot and mispronounce words because they've never heard them out loud. They've just read them. Mm. Um, It's one of the things I like about audiobooks is I sometimes learn how to pronounce words that I'm like, oh, so that's how that's pronounced. Uh Well, honestly, when I, I can remember being a kid and I read Oedipus Rex and had no idea how to pronounce that word because it looked so freakishly bizarre to me. And then later in college, we actually had to go over that in like theater class. Or right. Something. And I was like, wait a minute, this is familiar. Wait, I know this story. Why do I know this? And I finally realized it's like, oh, because I didn't know how the fuck to pronounce that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and here's the thing. Um, I actually first saw the play performed on TV the year that I lived in Britain, where they pronounce it Oedipus, and uh, ah. and uh, the brother or the brother-in-law, um, uh, Creon was was Crayon, and the next year when I was back in the states, we read it in English class, and my classmates would always snicker whenever I said Oedipus and Crayon, and I can remember like. Ah. The, our English teacher giving them sort of the stink eye and and um, they say things differently over there. Yes. Like schedule migraine instead of migraine. Migraine. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. So I completely agree. I mean, but yeah, those like Greek words are tough. Oh yeah. Well, my fr- my friend Jill, who um, I I don't know, I don't think you've actually met, have you, Jill Pantosi? No, so she I just actually follow her online. Okay, so she actually named her second cat Socrates, like from Bill and Ted's <laughs> That's outstanding. Yeah. So, well, the other cat's name is Dewey. So a lot of people were hoping when she was out trying to find a name for the second one, because a lot of us were pulling for Decimal. Nice. But, um, but she was like, no, it is absolutely not going to be Decimal. So they ended up with Socrates. And, and I'm so <laughs> nerdy librarian. As soon as you said Dewey and the other cat, I was, I was going to say, Library of Congress? <laughs> so there. Yeah. Yeah. Nerds Unite. We will talk about cats, too, oh, because oh. we always talk about cats on this show. I don't know. It's almost like, why did I call it Vodka O'Clock? Because it's about cats. <laughs> Hey, there, there's nothing wrong with, although most of the stuff that I see about drinking in cats, it's usually wine in cats. Uh, oh. Like my yeah, friend Val Forrestal, who. Love her. Another New Jerseyite. Um, yeah, she's constantly talking about um, her multiple cats and drinking box wine. <laughs> um, <laughs> so every time I see anything that talks about wine and cats, I'm like, it's for Val. Yes. I'm I'm very glad that you uh, virtually introduced us because she has a very entertaining feed. Yes, 
I I freaking adore her. She's she's fantastic. So my cat is here with me now, um, of course, on the desk. Um, I know yours is not since you are at the library. <laughs> Which is- it would be cool, though. I would love it if, if, you know, libraries allowed cats. But, you know, there's allergy problems and stuff. Yeah, we've, we've actually talked before about how it would be fun. Um, we, we, we actually got pictures. There was uh, during a holiday, our assistant branch manager came in to um, take care of some of the like we get so many people returning stuff that that it can overflow. So she came in to take care of some of that and she brought her dog with her and got some pictures of herself with her dog in the library. Um, and we, and my library actually posted them online as, you know, look, he's helping her reshelf stuff. So it was cute. They're helpful. Keiko, you know, was a really good helper getting me through national novel writing month. So, oh, that's um, good because Oberon was not at all. He gets really mad when I'm spending time. Um, uh, not petting him? Yes. When I'm at the computer, he meows a lot. He rubs against the monitor. Um, he'll sometimes, he doesn't walk on the keyboard, but he'll jump across the keyboard right in front of me like, while I'm trying to type. Um, and if it gets really bad, he'll sit underneath the desk and nip at my feet. Oh, because he's a young boy. Yes. Yeah. Keiko's not. She just has a nest, basically. She has a pillow on top of the desk. And I had to I had to move the monitor as far as I could to the right. Because when she'll get up here, she kept smacking her head on the monitor. <laughs> um, but... Um, so there, it's designated space for her. And what's really funny is she gets into, you know, particular schedules of her own. So at six in the morning, if I was not already at the desk typing, Keiko would go to work and she would just help, you know, climb up on herself. She has to go up to the chair and then climb up to, to her spot and curl up. And then I would feel guilty because my cat was at my computer before I was. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a regular thing. So, um, you know, so it happens yeah. and she's really good. So that's, a, that's one motivation technique is to have your, your animal guilt you into writing right. as opposed to guilting you well, from and ignoring them about writing. Because he, he gets so needy when I'm at home that mm-hmm. it inspires it really sort of urged me on to get out of the house and get situated at a coffee shop and write rather than hanging out at home and trying to write. And he wants attention and Netflix is sort of begging for my attention in a very, very quiet, subtle way. It just sits around the TV. It goes, um, so he did help in getting me out of the house to write. And that definitely, I write better outside of the house than I do home alone. Yeah, that's, and that's something that people need to kind of toy with and see what works for them. Right. But that's, you know, I I love that she is a low-maintenance cat in that regard, that she can just sit here um, so that I feel like she has my attention. Right. And, you know. And she gets down like every 15 minutes or so to go get a glass, you know, go, go get a glass. Yeah. To go get water. <laughs> and, um, 
you know, she's constantly asking for food and stuff like that. So she's, you know, she's up and down quite a bit. And because when I'm sitting here, she doesn't usually jump up on her own. She can, but she tends to like stumble if she does that. <laughs> so I, I try to pay attention when, when she's back from her dish so that I can just pick her up and stick her back on her pillow. Um, but she's sound asleep right now. Aww. How cute. Yeah. So did moving your operations to the coffee shop increase your, your word count or just your feeling about writing? Um, I want to say both. Um, it, it's, I think at home, because there are so many weird distractions in part of it, and part of it is that um, I think we've talked before about, despite the fact that I have can have really bad social anxiety, um, I'm also an extrovert. And so being around people um, gives me more energy. Um, so it, it helped me. I, I felt better about writing, and my word count was better. Um, there were days, like, if, if I was at home and I knew that I needed to get some words in, I could get maybe, like, 100 to 300 words one night um, before I went to bed or really early in the morning. Um, but then I'd go to the coffee shop on a day off, and I could end up rocking up to 3,000-plus words. Um, and I think if I really, really set my mind to it, uh, I could up that to even more. Um, so, so yeah, definitely getting out. And, and uh, I went to some write-ins, and that was also a similar thing where being around other people, even if they were, like, some people would take a break and just talk about um, their D&D campaigns that they play in or um, the fanfic that they write or whatever. Um, and I was even at a different table. I wasn't part of the conversation, but just being around that... Um, I wrote better than if I were home alone. I didn't get to do any write-ins um, because I don't have a reliable laptop. So I I checked the forums. This is one of the things that I, I think is really cool about the NaNoWriMo website is that there are forums and you can assign yourself to a region right. in order to specifically do stuff like this, like find people who are close to you and, you know, you can just like make friends and, and whatever, but they have these actual in-person write-ins. Yep. Then they have just some, you know, coffee clutches to get together. And then there are the virtual write-ins, which right. I've never done either because they tend to do those when I'm like, ready to just be in bed and turn off my brain so yeah i there's also um at least my local group also had um like an irc chat channel at the same time and and at the write-ins they would talk about what was going on in chatter and i never did it just because i would have been on chat the whole time and not gotten enough writing done. <laughs> like it's I think yeah, exactly. I think that would happen to me also. The I I used the forums because I mean Twitter and Facebook are distracting enough and Instagram and you know, they're all distracting enough. But um I used the forums as a, a specific break when I was like, okay, I really am kind of like petered out. I need to stop 
thinking of this scene. I need to go do something, but I want it to be writing related. Mm-hmm. So I would pop over to the NaNoWriMo forums and go through like the reference desk one is, is like my favorite place because that's where anybody can ask questions about literally anything you can think of. It's like I wrote, you know, my character needs to have car trouble. You know, what, what could she do? Mm-hmm. And other people are, you know, they'll be like, uh, you know, in 1832, what antiseptics were known? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's and, and literally I think, anything. Um, I mean, it seems to me that there are certain genres that more, if you're writing historical fiction, you want to make sure you get those details right. And um, I think it, you write cozy mysteries and there's a lot of, you know, you need to get details I mean, there's the whole joke about mystery writers who are always sort of getting weird looks because they go into libraries and ask, like, what's the best poison to, you know, or uh, if I wanted to kill someone with asphyxiation, what's the easiest way to do it without them fighting back? And, you know, and so there are certain whereas when I've written fantasy stuff, it's like, I'll just make it up. Yeah. And I and I think that's um, that's a liberty that I've given myself this year that I didn't do before um i i've fictionalized my towns before mm-hmm. just because it's it's easier in my head uh you know i don't want to there, there's you know there's always reasons why, why you would want to have a, a real city mentioned and why you'd want a, a fictional city mentioned so i've gone the route of the fictional cities and um but i will mention real cities that exist like oh this is supposed to be you know 45 minutes from new york or whatever right but um I'm getting to that point when it, when it, there are either not maybe poisons, but sort of taking liberty with things like how severely something would affect the body, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, I was reading about this great mushroom that is only lethal if you ingest it with alcohol. Wow. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing ever. Why? I mean, I've seen death cat mushrooms mentioned in plenty of mysteries. Right. And I've seen peanut allergies in literally every TV show right. and mystery series. They've done peanut allergies. Um, but this one specific mushroom, I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. That And it's, and it, you know, in the most bizarre thing, like it could be within three days of having consumed the alcohol. Okay. I'm like. Like, this is wild. I'm like, people are like, why aren't people just dropping dead from this thing all the time? (laughs) Like, that seems like a really ingenious way to kill someone is by, you know, substituting those mushrooms. And then, you know, you know that they're going to drink wine or you offer them wine. And then, wow. I mean, it's like the epoxy of poison. Right. (laughs) I just, I don't know. So, I mean, I get, I give myself leeway with stuff like that. You know, like chances are with modern medicine, you, you know, and technology, you could dial 911 and you can find safety. And technology has been another thing. I, it's like, we can't have cell phones and surveillance cameras solve every problem. Right. So in this year's book, I had them use cell phones for a specific reason, like the car trouble, say, okay, well, how do we fix this problem? And they'd go online and they'd figure it out. So they still needed the, to be resourceful enough to think, hey, why don't I Google this? Um, and then they needed to be resourceful in finding the tools to do it. Mm-hmm. And 
but then when it comes to uh, you know, like trying to watch the news and literally every single thing you do is caught on camera these days. I'm like, you know, how can you really murder somebody and not be caught right. on camera? These days? Right. Um, so, you know, I just had to kind of be artistically creative with that and just say, oh, well, the room was dark, so you can't really see it. Or, you know, the budget didn't have, you know, enough for us to have cameras in that hallway. Right. Yeah, that kind of a thing and and the camera technology has gotten so much better that my mom and i used to joke when we'd watch the news that we would see these so if you see this person and recognize them call crime stoppers and it's like how can you recognize somebody's blurry hooded sweatshirt <laughs> you know like grainy right. awful you can't even tell if the person is white or black or whatever and yeah, you're supposed to identify them and, and you know, call for right. crime stuff. And it's actually – it's fun to watch, um, like, procedurals and mystery shows and, and um, like, adventure shows where, where they have to deal with that and the ways that they get around it. Where it is something like, you know, the person knew that they were being filmed, so they purposely kept their face away from, like, the security camera the whole time. Or someone erased the security. That's always, like, a good one is somebody erased that footage. Um, and I'm trying to remember there was something. Now I can't. I swear there was, like, a TV show where it, at one point, like, one character said, can you zoom in on that? And they said, do you think this is CSI? Like, you know videos don't actually work that way, right? Like, I can do that, right. but the resolution is going to be really bad. Right. And that's that's something that has been changing and becoming more plausible is they were always like, Castle was great for that. Is zoom in on that license plate. It's like, you, you know, it's not going to make it suddenly easy to read. Right. So Numbers, which was a, a great show mm-hmm. because they would, it was about math. Yes numbers they would have the character charlie come up with a program solution to it and say that he he programmed the image program programmed the, the software to make the image pick the most logical pixel right. based on the pixels around it right in order to enhance an image well and the other thing that i like about that show is that they'll do that but he's not infallible and so they'll right. have something where he'll come up with some sort of, um, you know, formula or, you know, like, oh, I figured out here's a way so it'll pick this stuff. And then it doesn't work because sometimes, right. you know, the math is wrong. Sometimes the technology can't catch up, stuff like that. And I really like that um, that added all sorts of dimensions, not just in terms of length. You know, obviously it's too early in the episode for them to find this person, but also... Um, the number of times that he gets upset that he failed with the math that I've let people down or, you know, I should be smarter than this. And right. And um, yeah, I mean, obviously like with uh, the medical dramas like house, it house became too cliche at one point where it's like, okay, he's going to fail three times somewhere. in there is going to be a joke that it's not lupus. Right. And then you know, he'll realize what it is. Oh, um, yeah. My... It's a great show, by the way. Like, I'm not. Oh, yeah. And the same with, like, I, I know, own, like, almost every season. I, so. I love Castle, although this season. This season's weaker. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So much weaker. Um, but to the point where some of my friends have actually given up on the show completely. 
mm-hmm. and I've come close. Um, but uh, my mom was in town recently and, and ended up watching an episode of Castle with me, like the latest episode of Castle. And she, she's been a mystery reader for a long time. And she said, well, wait a minute. It was that person that they talked to early. All this other stuff was red herrings. What was the point of this episode? And I'm like, that's most episodes of Castle that like I've gotten to the point where I can tell it's almost always the second person they interview is actually the killer. But right. there's all these red herrings that lead them all over the place. And that's actually kind of the fun of it is because it's really about the characters. Uh, right. In the same exactly. way that a friend of mine pointed out that um, elementary has great characterization and great interplay between the characters, but the mysteries aren't really all that memorable. That's true. And, yeah, I and love it's true, that. Like, I, I love elementary, but if you ask me about a mystery of a particular episode, I wouldn't remember it. But I can remember the conversation that Holmes and Watson had where Holmes actually like realizes that he needs friends in his life or something like that. Um, and and a lot of times with Castle, it's, well, I just really want to watch Esposito and, and Ryan bicker with each other. It's true how how different the shows and the books and things can give you those memories because – Th- thinking of elementary uh which is one of my regular shows to watch there's only one mystery from there that i specifically when wow that's the coolest thing i wonder if that's true and it had to do with um blood type and identifying a murderer based on the blood found at the scene if they were recipients of a transfusion or an organ or something oh. it actually you actually can like leave the wrong DNA okay. at the scene of, at the scene of a crime. Oh yeah. I think I remember that. Yeah. So it was really interesting because um, I, I looked it up in a forensics book and it's, and it's true. Um, but it's to me, that was so bizarre. I'm like, why hasn't every show done this one? Right. Why are they still doing peanut allergies? Right. This is amazing. Yes. Yeah. So um, yeah. So when it's this, this year's uh, novel, I've uh, I've made progress in a couple regards in improvements, which is what you're supposed to do as an artist of any type or actually doing anything, whether it's creative or not. You should get better at right. <laughs> what you do the more you do it. Um, I, I got better with um, constantly putting my characters in, in, in a danger and pulling them back out. Oh. Which I think was something that I used to, I really struggled with last year. I kept thinking, God, well, what else can I do to them? Right. Like, mainly because I'm trying really hard to avoid things like rape tropes because they're a couple of women, you know. (sighs) So, you know, so it's, I'm like, you know, if there can be like 50 volumes of Nancy Drew and she's never been raped, we, you know, there has to be some other peril that I could put female characters in, right? So, um, so that was the, my thinking. And for some reason this year, it, I was able to do that easier. I still, I'm not sure if I have enough or if I have too much, like, you know, as far as pacing goes, that's gonna, I'm not gonna be able to determine that until I have the whole thing done and give it a, a, you know, a good read through. Right. Yeah. 
Oh, same here. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, but it's mine one of those... was much more nonlinear. I mean, oh, I was right. following your tweets, and 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 I think with a mystery, it needs to be written in a with a certain linearity. Um, I can't even imagine trying to write a mystery and doing it like as out of order as I did as as what I was right. writing. I think you you need to have the most meticulous outline possible, and I had an okay outline, mm-hmm. but uh, certainly not enough to just grab any scene and go with it. Because I started introducing characters that came out of nowhere, right? You know, so it's not like I had a, a set cast and said, "Okay, these are the people that are in it." Like I had people that I thought were going to be more important and aren't, and vice versa. And then I introduced like. Um, you need I, I need to have cops involved in some way because somebody got murdered. So, right. um, you know, so I, I not only introduced two cops, but I decided to introduce a third and she became much more important than the other two. So originally I didn't have a character sheet for her. I had one for the other person. And um, so, yeah, I can't imagine trying to tackle that out of sequence. Right. Well, and that's um, something I've always said about that. I, one of the things I like about Castle um, is even though a lot of the mysteries are predictable in that they have a formula of like which suspect they talk to in what order and like so you can tell oh that's the one who actually did it and they won't find out until the end but even still they're they're so tightly plotted um, right. that the red herrings never seem obviously red herrings and um, every bit of information they find, it's just, I think it like, the episodes are just like really, really well plotted. That's why a lot of them I'll watch four or five times with that show in particular, because I'll keep wondering, well, wait, how did they figure that out again? Right. Um, but that's, you know, the, I'm also trying to leave myself notes to go back and change things. Mm-hmm which I, I at least did an okay job of last year too, where it's like, okay, if I'm going to have them pick up this, uh, you know, laptop, I need to make sure that I somehow mentioned that they even brought a laptop with them or something, you know, stuff right. like that. So um, this year, one of the things I have to do is just change the geography. Like I said, I was making up fictitious towns, but I did mention a real state. I did say Pennsylvania. And then I'm like, I can't have them do that. Because the you know my character is a massage therapist and she's licensed in New Jersey and she's not allowed to go to Pennsylvania and work <laughs> so stupid me right. I don't think of that normally because I live so close to the border that for me it's like you know people work in Pennsylvania or New York all the time right. for their jobs but for specific jobs you can't just cross a border yeah you, you know and so I actually emailed the the state of Pennsylvania or Commonwealth of Pennsylvania whatever the hell they're called and um. And confirmed, I'm like, hey, I have a character that I want to do this to. Is it possible to just have like a temporary license for like a sporting event or something? And they're like, nope, absolutely not. You need to have a license. I'm like, well, okay, I got to go back. <laughs> Leave myself a note. After after November, when I get the whole thing done and written, then I can worry about changing and revision. Right. And it's almost like, like um, the reverse of Chekhov's gun. That exactly. instead of like, I've introduced the gun, I have to use it. It's, I have someone using this gun, so I better go back and introduce it earlier. Right. And this, that actually is something that, that sticks in my head since somebody explained to me what it was during a comics writing class. Um, 
the it's like is Chekhov's gun always a, a law because is it a writing law? And I say this because I'm writing crime fiction where there are cops and cops always carry guns. Mm -hmm. So it's called Chekhov's gun, but it implies absolutely any object. Right. Like if you're going to have a poison, you need to mention where the poison, you know, came from earlier. Right. Like, you know, show, you know, show that they had a rat infestation or something. So in my case, I, you know, there's very clearly a gun involved when there's police. So I'm like, talking about this character taking off her holster, putting on pajamas and going, you know, laying down on the couch to go to sleep. It's like, okay, I just mentioned her gun because that's what a cop would do. She would take off her, her gun belt and she would lay it on the side of the, the table. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's like, am I not allowed to mention this because it's her equipment? Right. But she might never be drawing it later. You know, I and I, that was the thing. I, the whole reason that this came up was when I wrote us. I was trying to write like a little comic book spy story, mm -hmm. and to me, spies would have a gun, right? And you know, or gadgets or something. And it's like Batman always pulls shit out of nowhere in the cartoons. Right. Like he literally like pulls stuff from underneath his cape. You don't know where it's coming from. It's up his ass, whatever. And he pulls out a can of shark repellent. And and in general, I think readers of mysteries. Hey, like if you just have the, you know, the last minute, the detective says, oh, well, I knew this happened because of this one thing that was never, ever mentioned before. That's a huge trust breaker with the readers. Um, exactly. And, yeah. you know, it's. Agatha Christie did it all the time. Right. And and I know a lot of <laughs> like mystery fans who are like, you know, they. They love Agatha Christie, but at the same time, they're like, yeah, you know, that, that one mystery where suddenly, like, Poirot says, oh, it was this one thing that was never, ever mentioned before. And you're like, what? Um, and it, obviously, like, you can, you can do that a little more. Um, I mean, there are certain ways you can do it. I think, like, obviously, if you're doing, like, a heist story, if you're doing leverage, then you just do the whole flashbacks. Here's what we did to get us here. Um, or Yeah, those were, were fun. Leverage handled it really well. Yeah. Um, it's sort of like when, you know, learning how the magician did their trick. Right, right. Um, or the one of my favorites that um, Castle does this and some other shows do this as well. I'm trying to remember. I was just watching something else. iZombie is really good about doing this too. Um, breaking the whole... TV thing of people playing fast and loose with the law um, uh -huh. when they go and confront the murderer and then they reveal like the murderer is like no it didn't happen that way oh elementary does this too where well we already got a warrant and searched this and we actually have all the proof we need <laughs> we're just at, right. we're just basically getting you to confess because that's actually better for you legally um, and it's better for the viewers if you know, we have the right. same reason. Whether or not your confession at this point is admissible, right. we're just still going to tell you that we know But you. where they always pull out, actually, we already got a warrant and searched your house and found all this right. stuff. Um, and I'm like, oh, you mean they kind of know how to do their jobs. Um, and it's not just, yeah, because if it was just, okay, I did it, that's, that's not enough <laughs> to build a case on. 
Yeah. So with the way that you worked on your projects this year, because you did um, different things, you had poetry and flash fiction and short fiction and stuff. Um, are are you actually going to have a revision process that you need to yeah. think about? Um, oh. I, when I finished, um, and I wrote about this in my blog post where I sort of summed up like, here's what I learned about um, my own writing process. And, and I mean, this was like the best NaNoWriMo I've ever done because I learned so much more about what works for me in terms of, you know, writing habits and work habits and what doesn't and writing techniques and finding my own voice or letting my own voice come out. Um, and I said, you know, I'm going to put this down, just let it simmer on the stove for a while while I do other stuff and then I'll come back and revise it. And already I can't get it out of my head and I've started thinking of um, how I want to rework it and some revisions that I definitely want to make and some stuff where, okay, I'm definitely going to have to like change this and tweak that. And I'm trying not to get too deep into it because I do think it's good to sort of walk away for a little bit um, and then come back to it. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely, this is also the first thing I've written. Um, the first time I did NaNoWriMo and I finished it, it was okay. Well, I learned a lot about, um, how I'm a pantser and how, um, when I'm making the plots up, they're going to go all over the place. And when you create a character who's meant to just be there for one scene, but you like the character so like so much good stuff comes out of that character that they end up following the other characters and become really essential to the plot and get fleshed out a lot more. Um, but when I was done, I was kind of like, eh, it's okay. I could revise this, but I don't really feel invested enough in it. And I can't really think of what I would do specifically to revise it to make it better. Whereas what I did this month, um, yeah, I'm already, like, I can think of things that I want to do with it and ways to make it better um, and actually turn it into a novel rather than what it is now, which is basically a collage of stuff that could maybe be turned, could be eventually something novelish, but is not at all a novel right now. Okay, that's cool because I wasn't sure if the the pieces that you were doing were related to each other or contiguous in any way. They were. They shared everything that I wrote had um, a specific setting and a cast of characters. So um, everything I wrote either had a character that I had already introduced that was like, here's another story about that character or here are these three characters coming together to do the thing. Or I start writing about something completely different, but then bring in some of the other characters that I'd already written about or that I had in mind were part of the cast. Um, and it, it all, I say it shared a setting, but the setting was pretty vast and involved. Like there are multiple dimensions and, um, other worlds, uh, but and it it's sort of centered around New York City, particularly Brooklyn, but went all over the world. Um, and now, 
what I want to do with it is sort of narrow some stuff down and narrow, like sort of whittle the cast down and um, actually have an actual plot rather than what it is now, which is, like you said, like a bunch of flash fiction. Um, there was some poetry and like prose poems. Um, I did some cut-ups of my own writing integrated with some other stuff. Um, and sort of taking that and turning that all into an actual novel. Novel. Okay. that's So is that something that you think you'll work on over the next year or are you going to say okay this is what I'll do for NaNoWriMo 2016 um, I think if I left this alone for another year I would go crazy it's okay, really so nagging me in my head to, to do more um, and I also sort of because of my extremely short attention span <laughs> I mean even while I was writing this I had other story ideas popping up in my head and I'm like no sideline those side like not now um the only time when i didn't do that was i woke up one morning from a very vivid dream that could be a really cool story on its own and i didn't want to forget that story so that day i wrote um one sort of chapter slash scene where a few of the characters are just hanging out and one of them says, Oh, I had this dream last night and then tells the dream. Um, which I did some stuff like that too, where, um, I did stories within stories. Um, and, uh, like one character tells a story. There is one piece I wrote where one character is telling some other characters a story in which a character told a story. So there's sort of multiple levels of, flashbacks or storytelling um and yeah a lot of that um it's going to need it's clearly going to need to be reworked um okay but at least you it it spoke to you enough and you liked it enough that you're not just going to say you know abandon it right okay well that was that was a fun writing exercise right yeah no this was and and that's what's great is that um for the first time that I've done NaNoWriMo, I really managed to go in with, like, complete zen on attachment. Um, And one of the... uh, I was really inspired. I I, I don't remember who. I've seen a couple of different writers talk about how the first draft is you telling the story to yourself. And... Right, I've heard that too. I really took that to heart. And that actually helped me find, like, let my writing voice come out in that a lot of the writing would say stuff like, um, so what do you think happened next? Well, here's what did. And then, and it ended up taking on almost kind of a fairy tale. Um, I actually went to Project Gutenberg and was reading some, um, public domain fairy tale collections, including Hans Christian Andersen and the Brothers Grimm and some more obscure stuff that I hadn't read before and really getting into that style of storytelling. Um, and in fact, I used some bits from those places. This was probably more work for NaNoWriMo than if I had just written straight, but I would, I would actually like copy and paste fairy tales and then rewrite them 
and the, the amount of work involved in terms of changing characters into characters from my story, changing the tense, because I write in present tense, and most of the stuff is written in past tense, so I was going through and meticulously changing all the verbs into present tense. Um, and then also changing references to older, like, older stuff um, to more modern. Uh, I think there was one, I used a Hans Christian Andersen story that's clearly set in some like little European town, and I changed it to London. And so I had to like totally rework um, instead of the, like, the characters live in these two little houses. No, they live in, in like apartment buildings in, um, you know, like public housing. Um, and so I went through and like changed all this stuff. And like I said, like that was probably more work than if I just sat and written. Um, but it really helped me find my own voice in that a lot of times, you know, Hans Christian Andersen, those stories are written as if he, he's telling someone. And so there's a lot of like asides to the audience and, and that's what my own writing was becoming because I was making asides to myself that I was the audience and I'm telling myself the story. And so I told it the same way that like I'm talking now. Um, and I ended up being really happy with that voice. Uh, it was, I was, I was going to ask you to explain what re- the remixing was because I had read about, you you know, your final blog post about right. it and i and i had never heard of that before so yeah um, um i mean i thought that was that was interesting and the way you explained it was pretty clear just now I, I, well and i've long been a fan of surrealism and dada and surrealism did a lot of um sort of like they do the exquisite corpse where a group of people would sort of write different parts of the story without knowing what the begin the earlier part was and so you'd end up with something really disjointed um and Dada did a lot of copying and pasting of things. Um, and the British author Jeff Noon, who wrote an amazing series of sort of post-cyberpunk, really sort of dreamy, surreal post-cyberpunk novels. Um, and I don't think anything that he's done, he hasn't had any, anything come out recently, but he's really active on Twitter and will tell really short, very sort of poetic, surreal science fiction stories in like seven tweets. Um, and I, I don't remember where I somehow I found a link to his blog where he has a post about um, doing dub remixes of your work. And he gives an example of taking something he wrote and taking lines from David Bowie's Starman and using this one website to cut them up. And then he takes like that whole mix of stuff and uses that as inspiration to start like it becomes like he ends up like I think he talks about writing almost like three drafts of it where you're like you're constantly rewriting it. So in the end, you'd have no idea that Starman had been lyrics in it at all. Um, but it basically it's a way of bringing other influences into your prose and using that as as a launching pad for your own in, in imagination and um so it's almost like fan fiction <laughs> but yeah like, kind of you know but kind of uh, and also i think I it's, know, it's but... somewhat like um you know when you're when you're a musician and you're starting out and you play 
other people's songs as covers. covers. Yeah. And you yeah. pick them. And know. then eventually you use what you learned from there and you add your characters and your emotions and your sets and Right. Yeah. Um Okay. I mean if you but, if you look at like the early well, I mean, let, the early Beatles and their covers of stuff, and then you look at the later Beatles and you can tell where they're influenced by other music but it's completely their own stuff um and that's i think that that's important for every creative person um yeah um i mean and then then, you know then you have the international bestsellers like 50 shades of gray that were fan fiction and all she did was like (laughs) like find find replace names (laughs) right yeah and uh, you know, poof, made billions of dollars. Right, and I will, I will admit, I did that. You know, like when I took a fairy tale and and copied it and pasted it into um, a Google Doc, and the, I do find and replace with the character names. But then I go back and start rewriting it, you know, to make it my thing in my story. Um, and even now, like even after I've done that, they still need more rewriting. Um, that's clearly going to be part of the revision process. Um, but, you know, I think that um, Austin Cleon, who has the books, um, he does uh, newspaper blackout poetry where he takes a newspaper, like a newspaper page and blacks out everything but certain words to make a poem. Um, and his two books... Steal Like an Artist and Show Your Work have been really influential to me um, in terms of, you know, acknowledging who you're influenced by and giving credit where credit is due, um, but in the same way that, you know, hip-hop would sample all these different, like, clips from different songs to put together stuff. Um, And uh, that it's sort of that thing, too, that that by sampling other people and putting them together, that's where you get your own style. Exactly. And the, you know, there, there are differences legally and obviously how people do that. Like you said that you specifically went after public domain work, which is cool. And that's the safe way to do it. You know, in terms of hip hop and, and other music, they pay for that. Otherwise they get sued and then they end up in court. So (laughs) we actually had a, a post recently, I think it was he, he was talking about Snoop Dogg, I think, who talked about um, that hip hop artists that don't give credit, regardless of the copyright issues, if you don't give credit at all, they're really looked down upon and and derided in the hip hop community because part of it is acknowledging where your stuff comes from, what you're building on, that that's kind of the point. And um, and that's, I, you know, I think that that's a really important thing to do. Um, I mean, just in, in terms of even talking about, um, who you're influenced by, you know, sort of acknowledging that and talking about like these writers really taught me how to write. But I love that. I mean, you know, there are different ways that somebody's work can influence you or that their lives can influence you. And one of the things that I wanted to ask you about today was, you know, if you have favorite quotes that were inspiring or, or blogs and podcasts and, and all that stuff. And 
something that I've mentioned uh, several times before is that I will look up Stephen King quotes, even though I'm not like, I, I won't even say that I'm a Stephen King fan. Like I, I admire him. I admire his work ethic because it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I, I loved his, his book on writing. Oh, um, I had the, the audio version of it um, and hearing it in his, his voice yes. to me was just so incredible. Yeah, right there. And yeah, and to to learn about his incredibly like <laughs> grueling blue collar past mm-hmm. and and childhood and his early years of you know being married and living in a shithole and stuff like that right. without even having a phone, you know, like there wasn't a phone. Yes. And, um, you know, when he got the carry book deal, it was like, well, you know, my wife wanted a new hair dryer. It's like, well, you have $200,000 now. You can go buy a hair dryer. <laughs> um, it's, uh, so I love looking up Stephen King quotes because I find him inspiring. Not that I'm, you know, inspired by horror books. Right. Or, you know, by me. Yeah, so here, I've, I've read one Stephen King novel. It was years ago. Um, but I find him in general to be very inspiring. Um, same with, I mean, we're both friends with Chuck Wendig. Uh, yeah, I love it. I'm only just reading my first, well, listen to the audiobook of my first Chuck Wendig novel, um, and it's his Star Wars Oh, okay. Um, but, but his blog, even if... His blog's phenomenal. His blog is amazing. And even if not all of his advice, both he and Stephen King talk about how important it is to write every day. Um, I cannot write every day. I just don't have it in me. Um, and in that sense, um, Aaron Morgenstern, the author of The Night Circus, who I'm a huge Aaron Morgenstern fanboy, um, I actually wrote her a little letter asking her about her work technique. Um, and she said she absolutely cannot write every day um, and that she wants had a conversation with Stephen King's son, not Joe Hill, his other son, um, who admitted that he doesn't write every day either. And she felt really good about that. Considering yeah. That both, and that's true. Yeah. And, but Chuck is another one where there are some books of his that I liked and some that I didn't, some, you know, sometimes the, the violence he, to me, he actually should have some of his books shelved under horror and other books. Mm-hmm. Uh, under more like crime fiction or whatever. Like the Atlanta Burns books are just vulgar, like his Atlanta Burns story. But then when you think about the Blackbirds series, Mm -hmm. um, I got through two of them. The first one I loved. The second one got to be way too gross. And perhaps I'm not sure really what kind of difference, if it would have made it harder or easier, but the second Blackbirds book um, or Mockingbird book uh, was, I had the audio version, so I'm not sure if that made it harder or easier for me to get through how terrifying there were certain scenes were. Um, to me, that was a book that definitely should have been filed under horror. Mm-hmm. Um, it's he's got supernatural stuff in it, so I think it just gets put under urban fantasy. Like it's you know right. that's that's where those things go, but. Um, Chuck tells people he's like you know he he spent five years working on the first book and 30 days on the second book like it's just there are times when it's easy and times when it's not right like you know 
So that happens. But the, my favorite Stephen King quote was about, um, he, you know, it's just that he's, he's always asked, how do you, you know, like, what's your writing process? How do you do it? And he just says one word at a time. Mm -hmm. So literally like one word at a time is all you need to do. And if there were days, trust me, there were days, my worst day this month, um, well, was zero because I took, I, I took a couple days off, but my worst day attempting to write, I got 14 words down. Right. And there were only, I think three days out of November that I didn't even meet the minimum daily goal that they recommend, which is 1,667 words. Um, so I think there were only like three days of me writing anything where I didn't at least hit that goal. And I, and I never, I never fell under my bar graph mm -hmm. because I, I had enough days that were cushioned. So I was, I was always in a safe zone. Yeah. I need to look at my bar graph because I was all over the place. There were, there were days when yours I was, must be wild. Yeah. yeah it was, because... <laughs> I mean, there was one day I wrote, I think 400 words and it was, I don't know if this would make it past like a second draft even. Um, it, it really, it only, it, it made references to other stuff that I had written for the project, but it didn't involve any of the characters and it, it was basically me just writing from my heart about why I was writing this. And like my output for the day was 400 and something words that made me cry. And so I'm like, I don't care that I'm well under <laughs> the, the, yeah. the minimum for this day. It was worth it just to get this out. And I'm sitting there in a coffee shop with tears in my eyes and hoping that nobody notices that I'm just like absolutely writing this, this like almost like a, a mini manifesto slash confessional mm -hmm. of why I was even writing the book um, and why it's so important to me. Um, that's pretty amazing though. Yeah. I, I, that's cool. the thing. Like I felt so accomplished with that. And then other days I like the days when I would, um, work with, with like the fairy tales, a lot of those tended to be really long. So it bumped up my word count really well. Um, and in, in one sense, I'm like, well, I feel like I'm cheating because I'm using this other person's word count, but I spent a lot of time on that because I was actually rewriting it. Um, so in the end, I was like, I'm really proud of my word count today. Like, I did really well, and it, it got me back up. I'm still behind, but I'm not as far behind as I was. Um, and I, I managed to, um, you know, there were, there were days towards the end where I'm like, I sat down at the coffee shop and I opened my laptop up. And I'm like, okay, I have images in my head. I have a general idea of what I want to write about. I cannot get the words to come. And I would freak out and I'm just like, what is going on? And then suddenly something would burst in my head and I just would write, 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 write. Um, and I also mentioned in my blog post about um, that sometimes I would just start with stream of consciousness and the, the whole point of it was, I'm like, I'm just going to write a prose poem here. It'll be fine. And I'd sit down and start with just sort of this stream of consciousness, surreal prose poem that suddenly became a scene where like, oh, wait, and now I brought this character in and now these characters are having a conversation and now there's a complication going on. I'm like, oh, I did not mean to do that at all, but there we go. Um, 
So yeah, it's 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 funny how you might go in with one intention, and just in the process of writing, it completely changes. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I think people I can't remember where the conversation started, but I think um, I think Chuck was one of the ones that chimed in on it was the practice of go, like you said you, you're that your first draft is you telling the story to yourself so that you know what the story is right and then throwing it away and starting over and a lot of people said they've had that happen not on purpose due to things like computer crashes right um that actually basically was my process for the first book last year because it was based completely on another manuscript that I wrote, but I, I changed some of the characters around. I wanted a more diverse cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wanted to change the names that were in it, but essentially the, the like, you know, notion from 30,000 feet of what that book was, was still in my head to the point where I didn't want to let go of it. And I wanted to, um, you know, I like it to the point where I even kept the, t- the original title. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't, you know, that might be along the lines of what's going to happen with, with yours. You're not going to completely throw it all out, you know, but you're going to start over and say, now I know what my world is. Right. And go into it. One of the, um, one of the websites that I like, well, besides, uh, writing excuses, which is a great phenomenal podcast. Um, I like KM Wyland. She, I can't remember where I discovered her, if it was just through Google searches or mm-hmm. whatever, but I follow her on Twitter and she, um, is on or runs the website, helping writers become authors.com. Okay. And so there's podcasts on there, but there's also some just short columns that talk about, you know, dramatic structure and, you know, when like how to write character arcs how to structure scenes and um of course she has books on this that you could you know spend your money and buy her books that explain it in more detail but um you know like how to how to break your plot into acts like what is the first act what is the inciting event what's the midpoint and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and there's a million websites out there that do that right um i just happen to I don't know. I found her and I happen to think that she does it in a very clear way. So it's, um, I always want to say Kim Wyland, but it's not, it's the, the initials K M Wyland, um, W E I L A N D. Um, yeah. And then I, then I, then I started looking up authors with cats because I, I needed, Cause I just needed to do that mm-hmm. one day. Cause I, I wrote my NaNoWriMo diary. I would update it all, you know, every day and publish it at the end of the week. And, um, one of my favorite authors of all time is Lillian Jackson Braun, mm-hmm. who, whose book she wrote the cat who books. Right. And there's, so there's two Siamese cats in her, her books. Now the cats don't actually go around solving crime. There are, <laughs> there are books that do that, that give the cats, um, you know, anthropomorphic abilities, but, um, but her cats, the cats do play a, a, a good role in it and companions to the main character. So, um, so I just felt like looking up pictures of authors with cats at one point, just to clear my head and do something silly 
And so Pinterest was good for that. Pinterest, you know, is good for quotes too, mm-hmm. you know, or just Google image searches. Like Hemingway, of course, is known for having cats because uh, the polydactyl cats that come from his estate are, you know, can be officially named Hemingway cats. Mm-hmm. But, you know, polydactyl cats anywhere else you know, that don't have the lineage of actually being from his estate are just, you know, cats with lots of toes. Right. <laughs> but I think it's you know so that's the the importance of of pets. Um, Elizabeth Gilbert actually I just discovered her Pinterest profile and she has a um, a board with authors with their pets. It's I think she labeled it originally you know authors with dogs, mm-hmm. but then there was one with like a hedgehog on his head or something, <laughs> and you know cats. Anais Nin with her cats. Right. You know. Um, yeah, it's, so I like finding inspiration sometimes just to clear my head. Yeah. That was, that was a big thing for me too, that there were times when, like you talked about going to the, the NaNoWriMo forums, there were times when I just like, I hit a, I hit a wall writing and just was like, I can't, can't word anymore. And so I would go to the NaNoWriMo forums and sort of check in with what was going on with local people here. Um, but also doing like image searches for stuff that was even like just vaguely related to what I was writing or just looking for quotes from writers. Um, NaNoWriMo is also really good with the pet talks, um, which again, um, some are more helpful. I mean, it depends on what your writing style is like. Some are more helpful than others. Um, I mentioned Aaron Morgan's turn before, but I love the way, the night circus originally came about where she was writing something completely different and she was getting bored with her characters and there wasn't really much plot going on. So she had all the characters go to the circus and she got much more invested in the circus. And so that's sort of where that came about. And that was a big inspiration for me in terms of if you hit a point where you're getting bored, send your characters off somewhere, you know, like just do something that you find is not boring and switch it up. Um, and keep going, like keep writing the story. Don't worry about. And again, like I, 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 I'm a really big believer in the idea that you should have as little attachment to what you're writing as possible when you're doing NaNoWriMo. Um, cause in the past in my head, I've had an audience. And so even writing in Nano, I felt like I had to have a certain sort of authorial voice and I was much more careful about my word choice and what I was doing with characterization and with plot. And this time around, I was just, my, my, um, I had a little slogan, which was, eh, fuck it. Not sure. I'm not, did I actually like, is there a huge plot hole here? Nah, eh, fuck it. Just keep going. And did I totally change this character's actual, like, characterization? Nah, eh, fuck it. Just keep going. Um, and that was so much more helpful to me in terms of getting it done than when I've been really concerned about, um, oh, is this plot making sense or is this character's motivation consistent or, you know, am I not repeating things? Um, so, yeah, I, I've, I've learned now that when I'm writing the first draft, no attachment, don't worry about how bad the writing is, um, let yourself be as crazy as possible. Right. But the, the, at least the first half of 
the NaNoWriMo portion of my book. Um, so like, I don't know, the first 20 chapters, basically, I was still in the mode of just writing so-and-so said, mainly right. so that when I go back, it's like a placeholder, more like a play. Like I, I know whose dialogue this is and I can frill it up later. Right. Um, yep. You know, but once I got to that point where I knew I was, you know, safely going to make, you know, meet the challenge goal, then I started letting go of that and I started getting a little more flowery. Um, and, you know, one of the, the things people say is that, you know, show don't tell. Um, and I also believe that there are writing trends. Mm -hmm. And right now we're in the trend of where now you don't even say said like the, you know, the Stephen King way was just so and so said, but now we're in a place where you don't even do that unless, you know, once in a while, yeah, you do because you need to establish whose dialogue it is. But there are other ways you say, you know, instead of so-and-so said, you would be like, you know, wow, this water is exactly what I needed. You know, Jane put the water bottle down on the table and walked away or something, yeah. you know, whatever. Um, uh, I read um, during, during NaNoWriMo, um, the, um, urban fantasy author, uh, Francesca Leah Block, um, she had a bunch of posts that were like really simple stuff, like um, just like how to have two characters interact or, or how to give complications. But, but she also had a really great thing about the whole, like just some general writing tips. And one of hers was don't overuse said, but don't also don't overuse the different versions of that and instead just give your character dialogue and have them doing something that shows that sort of illuminates the dialogue and shows more of who that character is. So it's pretty much right. exactly what you were talking about. Like, right. And that was something that I, that I learned from researching during my last book's revisions process, because I was like, you know, that whole, you know, don't use, adverbs or or whatever i'm like well how can i say that this person said this sarcastically without saying said sarcastically right so i started doing some research and that's where i discovered that people were no longer even using said and how they were how they were doing it and you know but thinking uh, you know getting back to like the the motivations and inspiring quotes and things there's a uh, an old Chekhov saying don't tell me the moon is shining show me the glint of light on the broken glass Mm -hmm. And so that's the really fancy way of the, the you know, show don't tell thing and um, show don't tell is kind of a garbage way of saying it. Like it doesn't really <laughs> I don't think it's a very clear way of explaining what people mean. Right. Uh, you know, but it's been, you know, plenty of authors have explained what it means to them. Corey, uh, well, E.L. Doctorow uh, said uh, good writing is supposed to evoke sensation in the reader. Not the fact that it is raining, but the feeling of being rained upon. Hmm. So, um, E.L. Doctorow, because I don't want to get the names wrong, right. <laughs> uh, said that. Corey's um, a different person. Yeah. Different one. Different one. Uh, too much comics on the brain sometimes. Um, but the... So there, there are these things that I'm going to go back to for revisions, but like, you know, the whole first half, it was just like, okay, I just need to, I need to tell the story. I need to get it out of my brain so that I know where the story is going to go before my time runs out. <laughs> right. Well, and there was a really interesting, um, one day during November, um, 
I managed to like jump into a conversation between uh, the short story author, Kelly Link, who I think is amazing. Um, and oh, I can't remember someone else. It taught, I think maybe it was Kelly that had asked like what, or someone else had asked like, what writing advice have you found not helpful at all? And, um, and that led to a conversation about um, a writing class that I took my freshman year in college that was taught by a published science fiction fantasy author. It was a science fiction fantasy writing class um, taught by a published author who I'm not going to name, um, but the particular author hated anything that was like in any way considered experimental writing. Um, and I, I had missed the first class. I came in, I added it late. So I didn't, what I didn't know until later into the class was the point of the class was to teach you how to write a publishable science fiction or fantasy story. And so it was very much geared towards don't break the rules. Don't be weird. Um, and the the for the instructor graded on a point system, including points for style, based on what she thought was good style. I ended up I didn't fail the class, but I got like a D in it because I refused to adhere to what she thought was good style and wrote and there were only like two other people in the class um who really appreciated what I wrote. Um and Kelly Link mentioned that she's like every like just in terms of writing whenever people have said like here's a rule that's of traditional writing she had this just rebellious drive to break that rule including show don't tell um and show don't tell is i think one of the most overused um writing dictums if you if you read older writing if you read jane austen or charles dickens there's a whole lot of telling going on um, exactly. Yeah, and fairy I mean, tales. Like, I mean, there's a lot of. Um, I'm. I've become both com- both like superhero comics, um, especially the ones from the Golden Age and the Silver Age, which are big influences on me. And in fairy tales and myths, where there's little to no characterization, the characters are very flat and often like very just archetypal. Um, and the writing is there's a lot of telling not showing and so i've really tried to like work try to throw out all the thing about um characters have to be really well developed and be three-dimensional and and have recognizable like weaknesses and and neuroses and also the idea that you have to show and not tell um, and it's kind of a challenge because it's so worked into us. Well, it's really hard in a classroom, just like you're you're saying, because when I was in um, comics workshops, there was this big sort of belief that you couldn't use narration captions anymore. You know, mm-hmm. like, just don't do it. Nobody right. wants to read that, blah, blah, blah. I just read the first Batman book that I've um, had for... Like I haven't, I haven't picked up a Batman book in freaking years. So um, I've been watching Gotham, and I had heard rumor that maybe that uh, Court of Owls would be coming in. So I'm like, oh well, I really want to read the Court of Owls storyline from the comics because it's that was like when Capullo and Snyder really took off, 
and everybody was raving about him as like the you know best selling comics mm-hmm. you know on, on from local retailers and stuff anyway so comicsology had a sale i forget i think for halloween or something and i'm like okay for 99 cents or whatever it was let me take a look at at, at this literally half the comic is narration captions mhm so this is the best-selling comic, and it's okay for them to use it, right? You know, if if I and that's and that's a DC formula. Every time I read a DC book, there's narration captions, well, which are re- simply have replaced thought balloons because thought right. balloon, it's the same exact thing, only it's drawn yeah, with a different. Form. I've noticed that, like in contemporary comics, you don't do thought balloons anymore. The narration, the the blocks of narration are almost always first person. It is. It's just telling you what's inside somebody's head. Right. And it. And I got you know, as someone who grew up reading, um, grew up in the Bronze Age of comics, and very quickly fell in love with the Golden and Silver Age comics. I miss thought balloons, and I miss the third person omniscient narrator. Um, one of my favorites, um, if you read the um, beginning run of the new X-Men, um, when it was Chris Claremont and um, Dave Cockrum doing it, um, Chris Claremont overwrites like you would not believe. Um, but sometimes it's kind of great. Like his, his omniscient narrator in the, in the narration text is kind of a dick. Um, there's when, when Jean Grey first becomes Phoenix and she's in the hospital and Wolverine goes and buys her some flowers because she's the first woman that he's ever actually like felt any kind of emotion for. Um, cause he's grown up a lawyer and he's, you know, sure. I've, I've had my share of women, but this is the first time I've ever like felt any kind of love for. And he buys like a bouquet of flowers from a vendor and then goes into the hospital and is shocked and dismayed to find out that all the other X-Men are waiting outside her room. And the narration is like, well, it's because you've never had any friends, have you, Wolverine? And I'm like, wow, Claremont, like, why are you crapping all over this character? Like, he's already disappointed. Does the narrator have to really rub it in? But I kind of like that, too. And I like, I love the idea of, of an omniscient narrator who's aware of being a narrator and playing on that. Um, and and that's why I felt like my own voice was coming out in that I was writing to myself um, because sometimes I can get kind of snarky with myself. Um, and it actually kind of went back to when I was an undergrad and writing papers in college. Um, I would, when I'd write a paper... And I was very much a pantser with that, too. Um, I would do research on stuff, but I would basically go in with a general idea of what I wanted to write about and then just, like, jam the thing out the morning it was due. And I'd have footnotes, and the footnotes, without me really consciously trying to do it, the footnotes became a separate voice that was almost kind of a smart-ass commenting on, like, you had... It was almost like I had one author one writer who was writing the paper and then someone else who was writing the footnotes who was like can you believe that this person even wrote this um 
And it became more, I don't know if my, a lot of my professors appreciated it at all, but it was more fun for me to write those papers with that. And that's kind of how, I don't know, like, it, like I want, like it's not, I sort of feel like when you're writing, you're not just telling a story. You're not just showing a story. Books aren't movies. And I think in a lot of ways, in a negative way, TV and movies have impacted fiction in that people are trying to write it to replicate that. Um, And they're not like that. And if you go back to pre-TV, pre-movie fiction, where there is a lot of telling as well as showing, um, and a lot of the narrator directly addressing the reader, because there's the acknowledgement that that this is a this is a book and there's a narrator and the narrator is telling the story um and i'm all for that um I'm, <laughs> fuck the fourth wall um right right i've um there's a couple other other blogs that i wanted to mention um well and just resources to mention because i've tried to incorporate some other things like um noting body language, which I'm probably overdoing mm-hmm. in this book, but talking about when shoulders are slumped or when they raise up and raise down, like, I don't know. And, um, you know, do having one eyebrow up and one eyebrow down and when all these different body language mm-hmm. things, nonverbal communication means. So, um, psychology today is a place, uh, where, um, Joe Navarro, writes he's a former fbi agent and interrogator and he teaches workshops and he writes a bunch of books on um ex- like nonverbal communication and micro expressions and things that mm. if you ever watch the show lie to me that was based on dr eichmann's work okay um joe navarro is like a, a guy like that um so he he can be found on psychology today and the forensics that I was talking about, um, someone, thank goodness, I've, I've wanted this for a while, is Dr. Lyle, um, D.P. Lyle, is, um, has uh, books out and, uh, and blogs out called More F- like Forensics and Fiction and then More Forensics and Fiction. And on his website, uh, it's writersforensicsblog.wordpress.com. And there's even an announcement that July 2016, there's going to be crime essentials for writers taught at New York's FBI office. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's only $100 a person, which, um, you know, includes some refreshments and and lunch and stuff. So, I mean, that's a really good price if you can get to New York. Now, it's the FBI building, so be prepared to basically do everything short of giving blood at the door. <laughs> um, it, you need to have all kinds of documentation mm-hmm. to get into the building. So, I, But I think it's a really wicked opportunity. I mean, that just, you know, yeah, crime, writer, cri- crime essentials for writers um, at the FBI headquarters. Um so uh, look up Dr. Lyle's other work. I think he do- does some podcasts and stuff too, but he, you know, he also writes books. So um, it's when they cross over. Um, I think we've talked about this before. You watch Criminal Minds, right? Yeah. Okay. So in my head, my head can is that Dave Rossi is actually doing that. Yes, basically. <laughs> yeah. 
Because he's yeah, and again, and like on Bones, uh, you know, that was based on on the real life of Kathy Reichs. Right. You know, de- derailed. I mean, like loosely based on her. She's but she's the one who wrote the books originally, and she really was a pathologist. Mm-hmm. So, um, forensic pathologist. Yeah. Once they're dead, examining them once they're dead. Yes. No, no, they're still alive. <laughs> um, so. Um, yeah, so those are like some of my my cool favorite blogs to go to and places for resources and inf- inspiration and whatnot. And I think that that's that's also really really important. Um, Austin Kleon linked to something recently in his um, email newsletter, which basically is just like his ten favorite things that he's posted that week. Um, but uh, he. Um, gets a lot of stuff from uh, the musician producer Brian Eno, who I've been a fan of for a long, long time. And Eno is a big fan of looking to other forms of art or whatever, science, whatever, as inspiration for what he does with music. And I've been doing that for a while in terms of being really influenced by um like my poetry tends to be influenced not just by music that I like, but um, paintings and stuff like that. And I think it's really important for authors, whatever kind of writing you do, to look outside of just fiction. Um, I mean, I think the and and I I want to say that the the like the um, piece that you posted, the excerpt that you posted from your animal, I noticed that. Um, from a lot of the nonverbal stuff that your characters did gave me more of a sense of who they were and what they were like. Um, and so That's I, good. I think that like, yeah, looking at stuff like psychology today or, um, you know, science magazines, um, or even looking at stuff like, um, sports journalism, because sports writers tend to be a lot more poetic with their prose than I think any other journalist. Um, you know, looking at stuff like that is really, really valuable to writers. I'm also making a playlist. Um, I've already started it. Mm-hmm. So I have a, a, a lot of comics people have been doing this lately, coming up with a, a playlist to go along with their story. And it doesn't mean that, you know, oh, when you're reading it, you should go put this on in the background. Right. But just, you know, if you wanted to, if you wanted to see, uh, you know, the mood that I was looking for during a certain scene, stuff like that. So um, I've already started that basically to cover, I don't know, like the first half of the book. Um, and I, I did that through YouTube because you can make playlists right. pretty easily there. The The problem uh, would only be like if somebody deletes their video. I yeah. tried to find official videos when possible because they're less likely to be deleted. So um, I have a, a bunch of blog posts, like I said, keeping the a, a diary for my NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. So if you go to that tag in, uh, you know, at amberunmass.com, you'll be able to find the, the one with the playlist. And I have a hub where I've collected like, you know, week one, week two, week three, just so that it's easier for people to, to get to. Right. Um, 
so that's one of the things I want to do. And then also, uh, like, finish casting my characters with actors if I were to have, you know, that opportunity. Yeah. Oh, I've, because yeah, I, I've that's that. just fun. That's, uh, you know, just absolutely mindless. Fun. In fact, I mean, I actually, just... one of my one of my friends that I've played a lot of tabletop role playing games with, whenever we have a game going, like when we're first starting, his big question is, who plays your character in the movie? Yeah. Um, and I, so, I, like, I love to... Yeah, we'll we'll go you know, like everybody's going to like doing Google image searches or going to Wikipedia um, or IMDb to get pictures of a particular actor. Right. So I haven't done that um, as much this time because my core characters I did you know I took care of last year. Mm-hmm. So um, so I haven't really spent that time that time doing it this year, but I did spend more time doing the playlist. So well, the playlists are really interesting because. Um, like I talked to some people at the NaNoWriMo write-ins here who absolutely can't listen to music when they're writing, um, whereas it's really kind of an essential part of it for me. But I had almost like two different playlists um, or two different sort of playlist bubbles um, that, you know, like where the music came from for the playlist. And because a lot of my story was set in the 1930s, there was a lot of old jazz that I would listen to. Yeah. But Absolutely. I also I've listened done that before too. to a lot of um, pop music and alternative music from the 80s, which is mostly because um, it takes me back to when I was that age, when that music was around, and how I was much less self-conscious about being creative. And I didn't censor myself, and anything that popped into my head was was um, fodder for something. And so it, it really helps me bring me back into a less self-censoring, um, energized creativity. And what I think is great about um, the coffee shop where I did most of my writing um, is they have music playing, you know, in the sound system. And most of the time, a lot of the time it was, they had it on an 80s station uh, and a lot of other times it was a jazz station. And so I didn't even need to do playlists because I could just listen to whatever it was playing. Um, and, and that that's another reason why it was one of my favorite places to write. That's so cool. Yeah. I was probably um, like half and half with having music on or not on at all mm-hmm. during this, this uh, year's writing. Um, I didn't think that's what's interesting is I didn't think I could write with, complete silence and then I noticed I did it one day and and I had probably been doing it and didn't realize it um so like like podcasts I kind of feel like oh I have to pay more attention to that so I I don't have podcasts playing if I'm trying to write I'll listen to something uh like a podcast before I write in order to kind of get me get my ass into gear and get me thinking about stuff like you know um any interviews with writers and stuff like that. So this year I basically know like with a, without question that I spent a lot more time in silence. Mm. And sometimes I even had to put my headphones on because of others. Uh, like there was too much noise. Mm-hmm. Like there's the house is always under construction as I've talked about. Oh before. yeah. Yeah. I saw it. Um, yeah, your tweets. About <laughs> so, so I, you know, I have just put the headphones on with nothing playing just to kind of help walk out some of the obnoxious noise that I definitely don't want to hear. Um, you know, so that's kind of interesting, but um, 
don't forget um, to tell people now where they can find you and follow you and read read the samples that you've put up and stuff. Yeah, um, www.goblin-cartoons.com. Um, I've got, I think, three different NaNoWriMo posts, one that I did just before NaNoWriMo started, one in the middle talking about how it was going for me, and then I did one um, at the beginning of this week, sort of a wrap-up, and I also posted two excerpts from what I was working on um, that were two of the few pieces that I felt you could read on their own and that I was happy with how, even though it's a rough, rough draft, how it came out. So, yes. Okay. And you are on Twitter, of course. Yes, at Joshua M. Neff. So um, I recommend that you go follow him there because we're usually talking to each other um, because we're kind of like twins. Yes. uh, As we know. So, Josh, thank you again for sharing so much of your life and your writing. And and yeah, thank you again for having me on. And Mary Josh Smith, when is it? Uh, My birthday is December 24th. Oh, okay. I've totally totally appropriated that day as my own holiday. Um, Yeah. and, And I tell myself that the people that get together and, and celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve are actually celebrating my birthday, whether they realize it or not. Because <laughs> it's awesome. all about me. It's awesome. And even though this will post after the fact, um, you know, happy birthday to our friend Natalie, Uber Dork Girly. She's been on the show before. Yes. Yeah, today is yeah. her birthday. And in fact, I was going to say when you said that you and I are twins, that, that Natalie have sort of, Natalie and I have talked about how that you and her and I are all soulmates. Yeah, because it's so, so it's so uncanny how you know she and I will have like the same thing at the same time. We'll have insomnia and be up around the same time, and only find out the next day. Um, and you and I have are so in sync with. Just like I was just saying that. Yeah. I was just thinking that. Yeah, it happens like every day. It's right. ridiculous. Awesome. Well, of course. So there's so that's the three of us. You can follow Natalie at Uber Dork Girly on Twitter as well. And the three of us are usually, you know, kibitzing with each other. Yes. And she also did NaNoWriMo this year. Uh, yes. So, and completed it, yeah, too. We're so, all winners. Yes. We're winners together. Um, cool. And guys, don't forget that I said that there were going to be some changes to the Patreon. But please go... Um, and pledge what you can realize it's going to be switching to um, a monthly budget type of thing. So it's patreon.com slash Amber Unmasked. And I'm on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber and Facebook and all those other places too. Um, Pinterest and Instagram and blah, blah, blah. But everything else is at amberunmasked.com. So that's where you can kind of get the skinny and see my NaNoWriMo diaries and all the good stuff that I've been uh, venting about or bitching about or praising. Sometimes yeah. I get, sometimes I do say really good things about things that I love. So um, cool. Josh, thanks for your time again. Yeah. And thank you again. It's always a lot of fun. All right. You guys uh, stay safe. Cheers. <laughs>